Hello and welcome to another episode of the Broadband Bunch. We are in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the NTCA SRC live event. I'm your host, Joe Coldabella. Joining me is Catherine DeWitt, the program director for the uh, Broadband Access for the Pew Charitable Trust. That's a mouthful. It is. Catherine, welcome back to the Broadband Bunch. Joe, thanks for having me again. It's so nice to be back. Uh, you know what? It's it's always great to have you. Um, your organization is phenomenal. W- was wondering if you could just sort of un- unpack for the folks that are new to the industry uh, just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, and just again, thanks for having me here. Uh, so I lead what's called the Broadband Access Initiative at the Pew Charitable Trusts. For those of you who may not be familiar with Pew or you're not like my parents and only know them from NPR, <laughs> uh, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. So we study everything from pensions to penguins and broadband uh, to help policymakers at every level of government solve really complex policy problems. And one of them is broadband, which is where we started this work about five years ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I can't recommend your your website enough. Thank you. It's one of those things where it's it's a great place to get just comprehensive knowledge in terms of just getting educated. And it's one of those things where this industry is so layered, has so many um, different sort of nooks and crannies. It's great to have a resource like like um, uh, P- the Pew because um, it, it's daunting sometimes. Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's I've been working in this space for about a decade now, and there is still I I mean I'm still learning every day, which is great. That's how it should be, but it can be very overwhelming for folks who are new to the space. And and we're getting a lot. Yes, we are every day, which. Again, that's good. That's what we want. That's how we're going to make sure that these networks are really useful for folks in the long run. We need people from all different industries and sectors coming to the table and saying, you know, I'm not a technology expert. I'm not a telecom expert. But let me talk to you about why these connections matter to the people that I serve, to my customers, to my patients, all of it. So it's good. But the education piece is tough. It, it most definitely is. So if we could hop into the Wayback Machine and go back the f- five years, I'm sure that there's there's no way you could have seen this the tsunami wave coming. But I would love it if you could sort of just like take us back a little bit in terms of, of like, you know, what was sort of the, the goals when you first started out and then how much it's changed uh, uh, no, we didn't expect quite the tsunami, but we were hoping for like a medium wave. Uh, <laughs> Be so, careful what you wish for. I know, right? Uh, this is the best of circumstances. Um, but when we started this work five years ago, it really was because we uh, had observed that states were starting to spend money on deployment programs. And that was coming on the heels of uh, the uh, American Recovery Act uh, and all of the spending that came along with that, about $4.2 billion just through commerce. And also there were active federal programs elsewhere uh, in in the federal government. So, you know, we kind of looked at that, scratched our heads and said, you know, why are states stepping into this? Like, isn't this problem covered by the feds? Well, we turned out and what we learned was no, it wasn't. Um, and I think more specifically, uh, we learned through that state research that states really were developing programs that were responsive to local needs. Um, they were reflective of what is a very diverse and dynamic telecommunications industry. There are state laws in place that vary across the country. That means that solutions also need to differ across the country. And um, additionally, um, you know, going back to our earlier earlier discussion about educating folks, Lawmakers were coming to us and saying, you know, yeah, the technology, great, fine, good. You know, let's talk about middle mile and last mile. But I really want to talk to you about the economic opportunity that I think broadband is going to bring to my community. I want to talk to you about access to healthcare. I want to talk to you about education. 
So they, we had rural lawmakers um, and largely conservative lawmakers who really were um, in favor of amending policy to ensure that connections were not only getting out into communities, but they were of a speed of a quality that was going to be useful for all those future uses. And then they were spending money on it. So that's where we started five years ago. Um, COVID hit and that kind of changed the, um, it accelerated a lot of momentum that was already happening on the ground. Um, some folks, Joe, you know this, like, oh, COVID happened. And all of a sudden, everybody discovered the digital divide. Like, we all came together to solve it. Like, that's not true. Uh, that This work has been going on for a very long time. And states were already at the forefront of, you know, really focusing on uh, sustainable solutions to getting this done. I, you know what it? It's interesting because I think what it did is it 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 focused it like a laser beam, right? So it's like one of mm-hmm. those things where, hey, listen, we were like, oh, hey, thanks, you you finally noticed us. Yeah, there was there was a a problem, and it just you know just the pandemic compounded it and and kind of like became an es- from an esoteric problem to one that. Everyone was like, okay, we totally get it. Yeah. We should have listened to you guys sooner. Because it was funny. I, I remember talking to Heather Gold and she said, uh, we were, we've been talking about the same problem since 2006. Yeah. So it, it's amazing. If I could go back mm-hmm. a little bit, you were talking about, um, you know, in terms of rural communities, conservative lawmakers wanting broadband. And it's interesting because um, I think it's probably because their communities were shrinking and, yes. and they're, it's like, hey, listen, we need to, to, to jumpstart our economy. We need to make sure that we're, we're moving along with the rest of the country. And it's almost ironic in the sense that in a lot of ways, um, now rural communities are becoming an opportunity because people want to move back there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a uh, it's sort of an amazing place we're in right now. Mm-hmm. It is, and I think that it's a. Uh... Uh, sorry, I'm sitting here chuckling, thinking about some of the conversations that I've had with rural lawmakers who get very hot under the collar when they say, ah, rural communities don't have opportunity. That's a lie, you know, and they then list off all of the natural resources and just the overall benefits of coming back to a rural community. But then they stop and say, but this doesn't matter if you don't have broadband because then you can't have jobs. You can't, you know, it, there are expectations of a younger generation who come back and say, like, I want the conveniences that connectivity affords. Um, and so that's really what drove a lot of these lawmakers to um, to to focus on broadband. They were saying our communities are dying because people don't want to stay here. They can't stay here. Right. And that's a hard thing to face. Yeah, it's funny because I was in Wilson, North Carolina mm-hmm. a, a few weeks ago, and it was amazing how they said that there that when people are given the opportunity to access broadband, they had a small um, local business that did 90% of um, their commerce locally. Mm-hmm. They got a high-speed internet. Now it's flipped. Mm-hmm. 10% is locally. 90% is now um, around the uh, the country and around the globe, mm-hmm. which is just amazing. It's just like, wow, it's like, it's amazing. It's right there. And that's like the best use case possible. Yeah. And it's funny. Uh, the So I'm a military spouse. Uh, my husband is uh, now in the Marine Corps Reserves, but was active duty. Um, and this is actually something that I talk about with military spouses is, you know, they, some of these folks live in uh, very remote places with not great infrastructure. Uh, but a lot of spouses, you know, it's difficult when you're moving around all across sure. the country every few years to maintain a job. That's a whole separate podcast for what needs to be changed <laughs> there. We can come back to that. But, you know, they are capitalizing on e-commerce, but they can only in to bring in income to their households. That's a stable job that they can keep no matter where they live. 
but you have to have internet to do it. And, you know, you you were on the talk today and I thought you you just crystallized it so much in terms of just such a, a simple stat, four to one. Mm-hmm. Would love if you could sort of just share that with everybody because I think it's it's the, the best sort of like examples like, hey, listen. Yeah. So I can't take credit for it. That's Roberto Gallardo. And I think Brian Whitaker may have contributed to that, too. So if he's here, you should grab him. Uh, We've had Roberto on the podcast. Good. He's the best. Yeah, Yeah. he's the best. So Roberto and his team did a a study a few years ago looking at uh, cooperatives in Indiana. And what they found uh, was that for every dollar the state put in not only into broadband networks, but also into broadband adoption programs, the state got between three and four dollars back. So Roberto rounds up to four. So I, too, will round up to four. So that's a four to one return, which is unbelievable. So think about what that could do to supercharge rural economies all across the country. And sorry, you like numbers. So I'm going to throw another one at you. Uh Ohio State did a study a few years ago, uh, and they found that, and this was extrapolating data, so GDP, which I don't want to explain, but they extrapolated that um, there could be about a $1.9 billion return over 15 years for rural Ohio communities. $1.9 billion over 15 years. It's amazing. In one state. Right, exactly. So it's there. It's like Mm -hmm. one of those things where and it's really important because I think that you also made the, the, the case for the why, because mm-hmm. ultimately that's really what matters. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. It, it's true. And that's why, you know, we, you know, you heard me talk about this today, but that's why these five-year action plans are so important that states are writing right now, because that is focusing on the why. And that really was also the hallmark of the state programs that we did research on um, in the early years of my project. And it is a focus not only on, okay, you know, these are the needs that we have have for connections and affordability and skills. Okay, fine. But it is, what are we going to use this for? How does this fit into our state's larger vision around economic development, telehealth, health, aging in place, education, population attraction and retention? And it's going to map out how the state is going to work, how the state broadband office is going to work with other state agencies, partners, sectors in order to achieve that vision. That's that type of setting, goal setting that I think is it's not only important for building buy-in, but it's also important for measuring progress. Sure. How are we actually getting to where are we getting to where we want it to be? How are we going to measure that over time? And that will also, quite frankly, help with um, ensuring that you know we can help lawmakers fill um, uh, fill uh, financial gaps when the federal money goes away because it's not going to it's not going to solve all of the problems of the digital divide, but hopefully it will get us over the connectivity challenge. No, that's great because you know what if if you don't have a target, you don't know what to hit. Correct. So these state broadband office plans now. So is there going to be fifty or does it? Um, they're 50, and 50. will they follow a template or will will everyone sort of like um, go to their own sort of uh, beat to their own drum? They're, well, it's kind of a balance of both, right? Because, you know, they gotta, there are practices that we'd like to see them use as the patriarchal sure. trusts. No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, not really, actually. But uh, no, so there isn't a, there isn't a specific template that uh, NTIA is asking states to follow, but um, there are common practices that will be reflected in the plan regarding, you know, again, vision setting. How are you measuring? measuring, um, you know, the stakeholders that they're bringing in and the, the way that you're collecting that data. 
No, I think that's it's vital because I think um, what you should do is sort of like draft off others. If you mm-hmm. see something that they're doing, it's Definitely. like, oh, listen, uh, California is doing X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. We should adopt that for our state. Plus, mm-hmm. it gives everyone a sort of the collective sort of of, of um, vision, which mm-hmm. is really important as well. It is. And I think that there's, um, there's a balance that you want to strike there between uh, making sure that it's not cookie cutter across states because sure, you absolutely. don't want that. But, and, you know, but also the reality is that like states are operating on a very short timeline right now. And so they do need to produce these documents. They do need to be meeting deadlines because right now they're under a 270 day shot clock uh, for receiving their planning funds to when they have to submit their five year action plan. Uh, Pro tip, Joe, most of those are going to go in uh, by August and September. So just keep your keep okay. your eyes open. So so they're uh-huh. totally work, working towards it. So Correct. it's one of those things where mm-hmm. they're not going to they're not going to wait till the, till the last night to study no. for the exam. Ab- oh, no, you can't. There's no way you could. I mean, honestly, this is a condensed window for a planning process to begin with. But they are they are not waiting till the last minute. We've already seen states release draft plans ahead of schedule. So it's very exciting. That, that's great, too, because it's one of those things where this is such a complex, complex issue. And I, I sometimes I just I, I like I was in a. Uh, talk yesterday i was like how are these folks going to get it done it's going to be amazing it's a lot of it's a lot of brass knuckle work (laughs) so um just to to go back to the to the state broadband offices um it's really important for folks to interact with them could i would love it if you could say you know just a few words on that because i think really um to to emphasize your voice matters. Mm -hmm. Yes. And now more than ever, uh, this is a very critical moment for all types of folks, internet service providers, community partners, advocates to come to the table and talk to states. Now, how you do that is really going to be dependent by states. Um, But the first thing you can do is sign up for communications from your state broadband office. Uh, But they're hosting listening sessions all throughout their states. Um, And it's going to vary by state. You've got some states like Texas and Louisiana who are getting out into every single county or parish in the state. Others where um, they may have a little bit uh, less density of population, they're, you know, kind of consolidating efforts. So the best thing that you can do, sign up for communications and updates from your office and show up because otherwise trains moving fast um, and that which is a good thing. But in order to make your voice counted, you actually need to make your voice heard. And, you know, it's funny. We've interviewed a bunch of folks from state broadband offices and they are amazing. They're awesome. Yeah, it's like they're they, hustling. Yeah, and they want to help everyone. They so do. it's one of those things where you know they're there for 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 um for you to use as a resource. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would love it if we could sort of just touch a little bit about in terms of um you know the ACP program. Sure. Now, um, is that something that's going to be included with with these um, five year plans as well, or or is it one of those things? Is it a separate issue? Because I know that it, it, there's a funding component to it as well. Oh, no, it's all related. Okay. Uh, yes, because participation in an affordable program and an affordability program is a prerequisite for funding for BEAD. Um, and uh, so we'll see ACP come up in a couple of places in this phase of planning that we're in right now. One is in the five-year action plan. The second is in the initial proposal. The third is in the digital equity uh, plans that states are also drafting are drafting concurrently. And we'll see ACP referenced in a couple of ways. Um, One is just eligible population, um, current enrollment rates, but also in talking about the relationship between uh, that subsidy and uh, the financial case for providers in order to uh, actually deploy to 100 percent of the population. That is it, it is defraying the cost of operations. That is why ACP is so valuable. You cannot take the deployment money unless you participate in an affordability program and you have to have both. 
Yeah, because ultimately, uh, it's the internet is the great equalizer. It's Correct. the great the, the chance t- for opportunity. It's there. It's one of those things. So access is just so so important. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love it if we could sort of um talk about B. Mm-hmm. So I know that the the announcement for for those who are listening to the podcast we was just made yesterday. Would love if you could j- just get some initial impressions. Did anything surprise you? No, sorry, I'm I'm pausing because I I really am thinking to give you an honest answer there, and I I don't I, I don't think anything surprised me. I, I do think that the numbers themselves are just sort of eye popping, even though I've been talking about forty two billion dollars for you know what two years now uh, for state programs, but when you actually see the allocations, um, it is. A staggering amount of money. Um, and so it is giving me pause about administration, but it also is a good reminder to um, uh, one about just how expensive it is to serve some of these communities. Look at Texas's allocation of about $3 billion. They got a lot. Texas is a big state. I'm not yeah. sure if you know that. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, they, it's big. I've driven yeah. through it. Yeah. It takes some time. It takes for some sure. time. It takes some time. Um, but then you also look at states like uh, South Carolina and Minnesota, where folks may have expected those numbers to be a little bit higher, but they may not be as high because those states have been putting quite a, quite a significant amount of resources towards solving this problem. So, you know, in some cases, the, those lower than expected numbers and like it's all relative. It's still about six hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those can signal good things like the state is already well on its way right. with closing the availability gap. Now we're going to focus on affordability. Now we're going to focus on skills. Uh, so hopefully that's how it all pans out. You know, but I, was, I just looked at the list in terms of, of the funds in general. Mm. And obviously, I, I actually think they did a, a relatively good job in terms of like making sure that the states that have massive rural communities mm. were given those. I'm I'm in the state of Connecticut. Mm. Obviously, our um, outlay was a lot smaller, mm. but also we're a densely populated state. We're a state that's that's pretty well connected. So it's like one of those things where I think that um, they did a good job in terms of distributing the funds. Yeah, I mean, I'm still, uh, to be honest with you, I'm still absorbing the formula uh, allocation itself because it's a little complicated. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think you make a good point. And what I think will be what will be interesting to look at uh, with states like Connecticut or Rhode Island, um, actually Nevada, too, for that matter, um, which I'm talking about in terms of concentration and density of population areas, um, are how states then target funds to get at the communities that are unserved or underserved. Um, Connecticut's affordable housing program is something that we're really interested in and exciting to excited to see how it plays out. You know, that that's a, a phenomenal point because my big fear is that, you know, people sort of know what's coming down the pike in terms of just how much data, how much volume is going to be happening. And I, I'm i afraid, my fear is that those who get pushed to the line, back of the line, are going to get pushed to the back of the, of the line again. It's just going to be so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's where I'm... You got to ca- be vigilant. Vil- very villain. No, vil- well, it, maybe some people will be vigilant, uh, <laughs> vigilant, but uh, a diligent too. And I, I think that that's really where a planning process and the um, the overlap and um, complementary nature of especially the five year action plan and the Digital Equity Act. That's where I'm hoping um, we'll be able to help um, ensure that those folks don't get pushed to the back of the line because. 
there are capital projects fund, which is the American Rescue Plan Act program administered by Treasury. Yes, that is infinitely more flexible than the BEAD program itself. But BEAD, like capital projects, does offer states the it gives them the authority to do things like priority, like cover affordable housing communities. Right. That wasn't necessarily the resources weren't available to do that before. Now it is. So the um, being very diligent is important. Um, making sure that voices are heard is important. But again, that's why we have to use these plans as a way of measuring and evaluating, um, measuring and evaluating program performance. Awesome. So you didn't have any surprises. Is there anything that you're excited about? I'm excited to get to work. I mean, <laughs> we have been. Sorry, I say that. And it's like, oh, we've just been twiddling our thumbs. Oh, we that, haven't. No, Please the warm up. We haven't even started the marathon, right? <laughs> no, we haven't. I mean, it feels like it has been a marathon. Uh, but no, we, we're, we're just getting started now. And I, I think um, from a research perspective, I am very excited to see how states respond to uh, what are some very unique and complicated deployment challenges. We are excited to work with states who are already thinking about how to structure their funds to um, whether it's around line extensions, whether it's around uh, the match requirement, how are they really thinking about serving these very hard to serve and hard to reach populations? So that, that's, a, that's a sort of a great segue too, because I know that the the threshold is 100 mm-hmm. over 20. Um you know, it's, I struggle with that. It's Mm -hmm. like, it's like, I understand that it's like, there's definitely hard to reach places, but then ultimately this is technology that has to last for 40 years. Mm -hmm. I would love it if you could comment on that. I mean, we, I would have preferred for the minimum to be set higher as well. Uh, I think though, uh, we are still doing education with policymakers around why building to that higher standard is a better use of public funds. And why we do need to be thinking about building for that 20 or 30 or 40 year timeline uh, rather than a five year timeline or three years ago timeline. Sure. No. Um, are there any other challenges that you see or that like off in the distance are like, oh, no, because it's one of those things where, you know, as I walk these halls, you know, you hear um, that. People are excited to work with their broadband offices, but they're also, you know, it's like, hey, listen, these folks are getting a ton of money. All at once, it must be just like, wow, what did I get myself into? Uh, the state broadband uh, offices, uh, directors and staff are doing the Lord's work right now. <laughs> it is it is a hard, hard job. They are catching it from all sides, um, but they are committed to the work. They're excited about the work um, and they're excited, I, I think, to think bigger Um it's not just about meeting federal minimums and minimum requirements. It is about how do we make this work for our people and for, you know, our goals as a state. Um, when it comes to the actual capacity issue of state offices, though, uh, they're small. Um, many, some states are limited uh, in statute by how many people that they can hire. Oh, really? mm-hmm. oh, wow. Yeah, a couple of states, uh, Louisiana, Texas are the only two that are coming to mind right now. But there are more where they're capped on the number of uh, um state employees that they can hire. Now they can bring in consultants. Okay. But, you know, that's a temporary solution. Uh, so that's that's a concern of mine as the state's not having the um, people, the hands, the, the brains to get all of this done in a timely window without completely burning out. Sure. And so you bring up uh, Louisiana mm-hmm. and they're sort of the, the canary in the coal mine as though the first one's through. Um, just, 
you know, any thoughts on in terms of like, you know, is it is it good to be first or is it one of those things where, you know, there's, you know, what, what's the saying? It's like um, the the second mouse gets the cheese or whatever. I don't know. There's. I don't know. You'll have to talk to Louisiana about how they feel about being first. I'm sure that they actually they will say it's exciting to be first. Uh, well, it, no, it gives them access to supply chains and all these different things that are mm-hmm. that, that are possibly later down the line. So, well, potentially it depends on how fast NTIA approves documents. So True. one could assume that, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the team in Louisiana is uh, they are trying to work uh, very hard and very quickly, but they are not we're not seeing the trade off in terms of quality and strategy. They are uh, thinking about how they can capitalize on the allowability within the statute. Um, I'm thinking specifically about their focus on resilience um, and how they are pulling lessons in uh, really from Hurricane Ida about how to make sure that their networks are more resilient, that where they can, they're redundant. They're using different types of technologies to make sure that these networks aren't only just there and they exist, but they're they're gonna last and that they're going to operate in a, in a national emergency. So I think the um, it's exciting to see Louisiana um, work hard to um, accelerate their work, but also focus uh, very deeply on what the state needs, um, its unique telecommunications needs as well. Catherine, this has been an absolutely phenomenal visit. Before we sort of wrap it up, um, do you have any events coming up in terms of the, 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 the you folks at Pew? Nothing I can say publicly yet, but stay okay. tuned. All right. So <laughs> yeah. uh, stay tuned, folks. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you know that, that, that we missed that you'd love to address? Or is one of those things where it's an ongoing thing and then we can have you, hopefully we can have you on, on the podcast again? Because absolutely, you're an absolutely great guest. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, uh, I'm always happy to come back and talk to you. I really enjoy it. It's always like a conversation and not an interview, which means you're just good at your job. Uh, But uh, I I think the last thing that I would say is uh, we need to keep ACP funded. Um, If we let that lapse, we not only let about 19 million Americans, uh, we close down that program for all those families and households, but we threaten investments that have already been made in capital projects and BEAD. So uh, the more that we can increase certainty around that program, the better off we'll be in the long run. And, you know, it's one of those things as well that Everyone here is sort of like ringing the bell saying like, hey, ACP, because it's it's the funds are not going to run out right away. But Mm -hmm. it's like you got to get it before um, that critical point, because then it becomes a scramble. And it's Mm -hmm. something that we just can't let slip through. Definitely. And I I think the more that we can talk about, you know, really what this means on a monthly basis for households, it's a difference in groceries. It's a difference in a gas bill. It's for your car. It's it's thirty dollars a month does make a difference in the pockets of middle and low income families. And uh, we need to be pulling those stories forward more and more often. It's a great place to end it. Uh, Catherine, thank you so very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that's going to rev up this episode of the Broadband Bunch. Until next time, we'll see you guys later. Mm